0: Hello and welcome to The Wire your national and independent coverage of current affairs right across Australia on community and Indigenous radio. I'm Emma Wotski, coming to you from Radio Adelaide in Tandanya, on the lands of Ghanamina. Our team pays our deepest respect to Elders past and present. We extend this respect to all First Nations listeners and to the rightful custodians of the lands you're listening in from. And today on the show...
1: So the work of the National Civil Prevention Trauma Recovery Project is about providing that love, that kindness, that respect, that radical empathy, the radical transformation, and we're relentless in the advocacy, particularly when we're trying to bring equality to power for First Nations people right across
0: the country. The Australian Mental Health Prize winners were announced this week. We hear from the winner of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander category with a project that has served as a lifeline for many. Also, Treasurer Jim Chalmers has warned of the costly impact of climate change saying farmers are on the front line. So what's it like for farmers now in the face of El Nino? And later in the show... Having the dentist above you and all that accidental touching due to the close proximity of bodies... So, yes, all the studies
2: exploring survivors' dental avoidance behaviour show that invasion of personal space through that
0: uninvited touch is a really major factor. A new report highlights the growing number of sexual and domestic assault survivors are avoiding the dentist. Out of fear, confines of the chair will re-trigger trauma. We'll have this and more for you over the next half hour. We're on air across Australia thanks to the Community Radio Network and the support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. First up, today is Save the Koala Day, a day for raising awareness about koalas and their importance in Australian culture. Koalas have become vulnerable to land clearing and bushfires. While some state governments like WA and Victoria are banning native forest logging, some states are falling behind, like the New South Wales government, which still allows logging in the Newry Forest in Mid Coast. The Wire's Eduardo Jordan asked chair of the Australian Koala Foundation Deborah Tabat to explain more about the Save the Koala Day.
3: Well, Save the Koala Day is the end of Save the Koala Month where people from all over the world, um, I, I suppose, you know, want to support our foundation because we take no government funding. But more importantly, for all of us to really consider how difficult it is for the koala in these difficult times. And it has been listed as endangered here in Queensland and New South Wales. And so, I think sometimes we can forget about these things, so it's great to have a day to celebrate it. We've got this t-shirt from um, Reg Mombasa, if you can get an opportunity to uh, get people to come and have a look at that t-shirt, we're launching it today, and it's a very, very funny image, as all Mambo designs are.
4: So what are some of the events that are happening across the country to raise awareness about koala protection?
3: On our website, you'll see people who are putting things on our socials, but... It is amazing to me how many people from all over the world, little kids in Los Angeles, have a lemonade stall or do a fairy cake stall. Some people over the years have jumped out of planes and celebrated and raised money. Yeah, there's probably people, as we speak, doing something, painting their noses black or whatever. And on our website, we've got a whole range of ideas for people to do silly things that, that make it fun.
4: So over the last couple of years, koalas have been vulnerable and maybe come an endangered species. I mean, it's uh, weather changes and then native logging, etc. What are some of the risks koalas face at this point?
3: Well, we have a slogan called No Tree, No Me, and the koala has now been listed as endangered in Queensland, New South Wales, which is shocking when you think about it. And look, it really is important that we just protect their trees, and that is a lot harder than anyone would imagine. Housing estates, logging, coal mines, coal seam gas, everything impacts on koala habitat. So the numbers of koalas have dwindled and I think people might be shocked to know that in the old days there was a fur trade and we actually know that 8 million skins went to London and New York as part of the fur trade. So I don't think the koala populations have ever really recovered from that time as well.
4: Now, some states like Western Australia and Victoria are applying bans on native logging, but not in New South Wales well at the Newry Forest, which was initially intended to protect koalas, like becoming a koala sanctuary. What are your impressions about this?
3: Well politicians when they're going into an election often make a big statement you know we're going to build a national park or we're going to do those things and because I've been in my job for a long time several decades I've seen a lot of announcements that rarely come into fruition which is why the koala has just gone from worse to worse and logging in New South Wales I think will eventually end but there's still going to be a lot of logging prior to that happening and of course, that devastation can often occur. So I think our political leaders are still sort of anxious about people losing their jobs and whatever. And my argument to that would be we have to retrain people to come out of those industries and find another way to, to make those country towns that have normally been involved in those sorts of activities to have new ways of being. And imagine tourism. If you had a great national koala park, you would have people from all over the world coming in to see koalas in the wild, not seeing dead trees on the ground.
4: Victoria banned the native forest because of pressure of activists in the community. What else can the community and advocacy groups like the Australian Koala Foundation do to ban native logging and to give more protection to koalas?
3: Well, our organisation is a scientific organisation and what we do do is provide maps of which parts of Australia are primary habitats and so we provide those, that information to the groups on the ground. And I'm proud to say that I've had a long history of working with a lot of activists and I think they're so amazingly brave and I think our laws are becoming quite unjust because those people who are speaking for all of us who don't have the courage to go into the, into the forest and sit up in a tree, I think the rights of freedom of speech are being curtailed And um, I just admire some of those people greatly.
0: Chair of the Australian Koala Foundation, Deborah Tabbert, speaking with The Wires' Eduardo Jordan. From mud to concrete in just weeks. This has been the experience reported by a farmer on New South Wales' north coast watching his farmland endure the drastic impacts of fire, flooding and now drought and all at the devastating hands of climate change. This week at the National Drought Forum, Treasurer Jim Chalmers revealed climate change could cost Australia around 1.8 billion dollars in crop losses over 3 decades if instant action isn't taken, acknowledging our farmers are on the front line. This comes with the first review of the Future Drought Fund, highlighting both potentials of the fund along with need for improvements. So, how are farmers on the ground managing the economic hits of climate crisis now in the face of El Niño? some of the support programs accessed and where is change needed. Grazier from Ulmaran in Northern Rivers region, Pete Lakes, shares his experience.
5: We are graziers. We don't breed cattle anymore and that was a decision made partly because of the difficulties managing a breeding herd when from time to time we have a major flood and we have very restricted access to flood-free land. So we buy and typically grow them out to about 450 kilos and we sell them on. Typically what we've also done is grow crops both winter and summer where we grow mainly oats, sometimes barley in winter. We graze that as part of our winter feed cycle and we bale the uh, excess, we lock up some paddocks, we bale that and use that as stored fodder. In summer we grow soybeans and then we typically bale that for we make silage out of that. Occasionally we have harvested soybeans, but we're a relatively small operation in that regard.
0: In recent years, how has climate change or climate crisis rather impacted you directly?
5: It's completely changed our view of the world. We can no longer plan with an expectation of certain things happening. This current drought is a classic example. Typically in a long dry, including a drought, We'd still get some wet and we could still grow a winter crop or a, and and we're coming into the summer period now, but we planted a winter crop and we've got a zero return and that's happened repeatedly over recent. We've planted soybeans and it's just been too dry. It didn't come out of the ground. We've planted soybeans. It got wet and it was too wet and we've planted twice. We planted a late summer crop this year on the expectation of getting some moisture through winter, following some rain just at the start of winter, we actually planted a winter crop. And again, it was just a zero return on that investment.
0: Over the recent years, there's been fires, floods, now drought. What has been the recovery or resilience process to that?
5: exercise Emma. Typically all farmers deal with with the vagaries of the climate and we cope with those through various reasons and various strategies. In our case we normally would have had stored fodder. During the flood we did have some fodder that we'd made. The last time we made hay was September 2020 and we had a pretty good season then. so we we baled um, oat and hay. We make round bales and store them But we also had a lot of pasture hay, we had some signal grass hay, we had some roads grass hay and just general pasture hay. So when we came into that big flood in uh, early 2022, we had 150 round bales of that order, of round bales of fodder, which carries us through the flood. And then typically after the flood we'll recover and we'll probably have a reasonable season following that because of the residual moisture. This time it was very different. The extremes that we're getting due to climate change mean harsher events, more frequent and more extreme.
0: And the Australian Treasurer Jim Chalmers revealed that climate change could cost Australia $1.8 billion in crop losses in 30 years if immediate action isn't taken. So when it comes to costs and economic impact, what have been some of your experiences with finance, I guess, in relation to crops?
5: We've actually planted at least three crops now that have been a total failure. Zero return on investment. A, a double whammy because you take that paddock out of production so it's no longer pasture, so you can't use it for grazing. You plant a crop, which you're hopefully going to get some grazing off at, as part of the cycle and or some fodder to store for the rainy day or the, or the not rainy day. If you get neither, then you've, you've got a double whammy. You've got the cost of putting in the crop and then you've got the reduced revenue that could come if you if you just kept that paddock as pasture. you'd still potentially have been able to get something out of it so throughout that whole couple of seasons we've had those paddocks have been non-productive so it's just been money going out the door and not a cent coming back in
0: and have you received any government support with the the hit that you've taken at all
5: Absolutely. Look, we have been blessed here in that we got support after the flood for um, recovery, which enabled us to replace some fence and things like that, right? And we've also been approved for what's known as a critical producer grant for future resilience infrastructure. And we're in the process of changing the physical nature of our farm now, funded largely from that money. So, yeah, we've been blessed. We're very lucky.
0: Farmer Pete Lakes speaking with me there. You're listening to The Wire, independent current affairs on community and Indigenous radio. I'm Emma Watsky coming to you from Adelaide. A huge hello to our listeners in Armadale, to ARM, FM, Armadale Community Radio, and to Hobart, Edge Radio, 99.3 FM, and of course to our friends in Noosa on 101.3 Noosa FM. This week, the Australian Mental Health Prize winners were announced for contribution of their work in the mental health space. The category of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander winner for 2023 is Director of the National Suicide Prevention and Trauma Recovery Project and Minang woman from Noongar Earth, Megan Crager. The project has served as a lifeline to more than 25,000 people asking for support. The Wire's Eduardo Jordan asked Miss Crager her thoughts of winning this award.
1: Just receiving this award is an incredible honour, it's, it's a representation of all the families that I've been working with around suicides, incarceration, deaths in custody, child removals, homelessness, and very much highlighting the deficit truth in relation to our First Nations people very much across the country, so I'm deeply hum- humbled, deeply honoured, and I pay homage and respect to all First Nations brothers and sisters across the country.
4: So for our listeners who are unfamiliar, could you please tell us a little bit more about the National Suicide Prevention and Trauma Recovery Project and its aim?
1: So the National Suicide Prevention and Trauma Recovery Project is a fledgling service. We punch well and truly above our way. It's our work with an incredible gentleman, the greatest human rights champion to my mind. His name is Jerry George Artis. We provide that intense psychosocial support, the assertive outreach, which is 24-7 to some of the most vulnerable, marginalised, voiceless and silenced uh, brothers and sisters across the country, dealing specifically with child removals, incarceration, homelessness. We know that right across the country it is a poverty narrative with First Nations people nationally falling below the poverty line by 40%. In Western Australia, my home state, it's 60%. Up in the Northern Territory, it's about 75%. So there's a lot of challenges, particularly in relation to First Nations people and the National Suicide Prevention Trauma Recovery Project. We've been on about 140 safety plans in relation to Department of Child Protection and its counterparts across the country. That's in terms of child removals and making sure that families keep their, their children with them so there's a lot of advocacy, we're quite relentless at this point the Banksy Hill Detention Centre which is a youth detention centre in Western Australia um, it's the only one we've got a class action against the state of Western Australia in relation to the inhumane and the torturous treatment that children have been subjected to since it opened in 1997 so the work of the National Suicide Prevention Trauma Recovery Project is about providing that love, that kindness, that respect that radical empathy, the radical transformation and we're relentless in the advocacy, particularly when we're trying to bring equality to powerful First Nations people right across the country.
4: Now, how important <laughs> and critical is for First Nations peoples to access support for mental health?
1: It's a matter of life and death. I can't say it any straighter than that. It is a matter of life and death. We, know, we also need to understand when we're speaking about First Nations people, we're not homogenous. We have remote communities, rural city so we are very different people but very much the same from the same group right across the country but we are not homogeneous there are places where aboriginal people first nations people are still very much entrenched in their law and culture where english is a second language there's places in remote community that have no mental health services whatsoever so the community remains stranded and abandoned and that is really quite problematic but in terms of having that mental health support person that is absolutely critical because it can without it lead to disordered thinking it can also lead to a person taking their lives right now across the country suicide is a crisis of our time we've gone from one in 23 down to one in 16 first nations people taking their lives that makes it the leading cause of the death for our people under the age of 40 years old.
4: So in October, Australians will vote on the Voice to Parliament as a referendum, as everyone knows, to enshrine a First Nations voice into the Constitution. In your experience and in your expertise, how is this topic affecting in First Nations people's mental health?
1: I was just speaking with a sister girl um, not long ago, and she's voting no, I'm voting Yes but we're still having the, having beautiful, strong conversations, which is really quite pleasing. What I have seen, though, in terms of people across the country is that there's been some very unkind conversations, there's been some very unkind truths, there's been unkind misrepresentations, and that's pitted people against each other, whether it be politicians, whether it be First Nations people. What is needed is strong, healthy, robust conversations. State your position why you're voting away and let it be a true democracy where people can vote in ways that should. People are being called horrible, heinous, terrible names and that is not a reflection of them as a person but it's a reflection of their particular views and as a result they're being tarnished. They're being treated in such a way where it's almost a crime to say what you believe in and that is wrong. The lateral violence is absolutely profound and it has no place in this lucky country, which is Australia, the 12th richest economy in the world.
0: Director of the National Suicide Prevention and Trauma Recovery Project, Megan Crager, speaking with The Wires' Eduardo Jordan. And if the story brings any concerns for you, help is always available. Call 13-YARN, that's 139276. A report published at the World Dental Congress in Sydney has found a growing number of sexual and domestic assault survivors are avoiding the dentist because they fear they may relive the trauma in the confines of the dental chair. 75% 75% of injuries from violence involve the head, neck, face and mouth, which are the main areas of the body that dentists work with. National Radio News reporter Remy Norton asked Melbourne-based dentist Sharon Zacks the links between poor oral health and domestic violence.
2: So all trauma involves a lack of control and a loss of power. Just by definition, it's events that are so stressful they overwhelm our ability to cope and unfortunately uh, the body remembers it's a real shock to the system and as a survival response the body remembers and looks out for similar threats in the future and so when we're feeling helpless again or in a similar situation to the original trauma uh, painful memories and emotions resurface in the dental context unfortunately there's a huge degree of submission required just to get procedures done and so uh, the power imbalance mimics the original loss of power as part of the assault and uh, so people have a lot of painful memories and emotions come back and intense distress and that's what leads them to avoid coming to the dentist which leads to deterioration and poor oral health. In a report you
1: specifically mentioned like lying prone in the lap of an authority figure, would you be able to go into a little bit more depth about what else can trigger those
2: memories? So yes, there's lying in the lap of a trusted authority figure, which is a reminder of childhood abuse, because it usually happens during childhood, most commonly. And then there's feeling unable to move, sort of feeling, which is a reminder of being pinned down. Yes, in in the dental chair, you can't really move. And then feeling or being unable to speak. So that's a reminder of being silenced having the dentist above you and all that accidental touching due to the close proximity of bodies. So, yes, all the studies exploring survivors' dental avoidance behaviour show that invasion of personal space through that uninvited touch is a really major factor. That is great, thank you. And it
1: does lead me to my next question. So what do you as a dentist look for when it comes to identifying sexual assault victims?
2: There are very specific indicators that we should uh, all know and look out for because most of the time we won't be told. So... Our survival responses to perceived threat, one of the, the biggest ones is fear, and although we're really familiar with sort of sweaty, shaky, anxiety, panic, that sort of uh, hyped up version of fear, in sexual assault survivors there's another way it can play out, another fear response, which is to withdraw, and it's called dissociation, and it can also manifest as a freeze, kind of deer in the headlights kind of response. So. Yes, dissociation is where the patient isn't present and they're sort of detached from their own sort of awareness of their body and emotions so they can actually lose the ability to respond to us. And it's particularly critical in dentistry because patients who are dissociating can seem quiet uh, and like they're coping well so we can sort of very easily miss it. So yeah, that response to fear is very common in sexual assault survivors called dissociation
1: that's great and are there any statistics of how many uh, how many sexual assault survivors aren't going
2: to the dentist oh I wish it's a really great question because sexual assault is so incredibly common it hasn't been measured as far as I'm aware but worldwide the global statistic that is most uh, accurate is roughly a third of our female patients and roughly a sixth of our male patients have been sexually assaulted by the age of 18 globally. So in fact, thought that these numbers are far worse because of the issue of underreporting. So most people don't report what happens. And also because of the pandemic with lockdowns, people were unable to access services and support. So sexual assault of children went right up with lockdowns and also intimate partner violence sexual assault within that. Context. So at least a third of our female patients and a sixth of our male patients are, are affected. And regarding dental avoidance statistics, I'm not aware of any big studies that have been done, usually because survivors prefer to remain undisclosed.
1: Yeah, that's very understandable. Um, due to the risk yes. of not going to the dentist,
2: what is the industry going to do better to
1: support survivors?
2: Oh, well, I'm on a big mission to change and sort of completely transform our awareness of this. So. As far as I'm aware, I'm the first person to kind of link this and advocate for survivors of not just sexual assault, but all kinds of trauma globally. And uh, I've been very busy putting the word out, spreading the messages to dentists at various Congresses and continuing education events over the last few years. And uh, speaking at this World Dental Congress yesterday, that's going to have a a global reach. It's a real opportunity we have as dentists to help survivors in their process from healing from trauma. So I've had a lot of great engagement and interest. And so it's a, a real emerging area. My hope is that, and there has been great interest in this, that I'll develop a curriculum for all the undergraduate dental students
0: in Australia. Dentist Dr Sharon Zach speaking with National Radio News, Remy Norton. And unfortunately, that's the end of the show today. Thanks so much for listening. The Wire is a co-production between 2SER in Gadigal, Sydney, 3 Z in Narm, Melbourne, 4 Z and Radio 4EB in Nianjin, Brisbane and Radio Adelaide with the great support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation and the Community Radio Network. Remember, you can check out our store at thewire.org.au and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. I'm Emma Wotski coming to you from Radio Adelaide in Tandania, Adelaide. Thanks so much for your company and we'll see you next time on The Wire.